Uh, so this is a series of lectures dealing with uh, Puritanism. Uh, I'm going to do a recap of one thing that we looked at last uh, in the fall, the series of Trek lectures in the fall. We looked at the Reformation, uh, Luther, uh, the German Reformation, uh, Calvin, the French Reformation, and uh, our uh, series in the fall concluded with the English Reformation. So I'm going to do a recap of that a bit tonight. So those of you who weren't here will have some idea as to uh, the foundations of Puritanism, because Puritanism grows out of the Reformation. Um, and for those of you who were here, uh, just a reminder, uh, because uh, we tend to forget things. Um, so um, uh, I'll pray, and then uh, I'll give you some idea right, where we're going. And um, uh, explain some uh, of the details uh, of what we're going to do. We're going to run through to April 10th. Uh, we'll have one week off in February, uh, which coincides with reading week in colleges and uh, whatever. And um, I'm having a vacation then, uh, hopefully. Uh, anyway, let's, uh, let's pray together, and then uh, we'll... Uh, pick up where on um, uh, the early Puritans. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us, for provi your providence in our lives, for bringing us to this point in time. We pray that as we think about the past, it might be helpful for us in our lives, uh, both uh, informing us about those who have gone before us, deepening our sense of uh, humility at what we have received, but also a sense of obligation to pass on. Uh, that which we have uh, been given. Uh, we pray your blessing also that it might be spiritually uh, helpful. Uh, pray that uh, it might not be merely antiquarian, thinking about details of the past that have no uh, bearing upon our lives today, but that you would use our time together to help us grow as your children. Now we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this is a... just. Uh, uh, tech, this picture is described as a Puritan woman. Um, no indication of who she is, but obviously uh, somebody, a woman in the 17th century. The style is very 17th century. Um, it does give some details regarding date at the top there, which is very, uh, it's not easily seen uh, in the lighting. Um, and uh, uh, I thought it was a very appropriate kind of picture to kind of introduce uh, this uh, theme. So this is a, a, a series of lectures. I called it the refining fire. That's not, I've got it in quotes there. That's not uh, unique, uh, original to me. I got this title from J.I. Packer uh, many years ago uh, in the 1950s, 1960s. A number of evangelical historians decided they were going to write uh, about a 10, 12 volume history of the entire church. And all of the volumes appeared. They all had um, uh, uh, something to do with fire in them. So, for instance, the early church, which F.F. F. Bruce, the, the uh, New Testament scholar from Manchester in England, wrote, he called it the spreading flame. And so you can see that all of them had something like this. And J.I. Packer was assigned the refining fire, and it never appeared. 
Uh, I'm not sure the details of why he never wrote it, but um, uh, all of the volumes were complete by the 1960s, and that volume never appeared. It was advertised, but it never came out. About 30 years later in the 1990s, he published a volume called Quest for Godliness, which had a whole series of articles on the Puritans. And he mentioned in the introduction that this was really kind of what he was intending, but it had never appeared. But I like the, I like the title, uh, Refining Fire. Um, it speaks of the way in which the Puritans were very interested in holiness and sanctification, or Christian godliness, or communion with God. And uh, in some ways, uh, one of the sub-themes of what I want to do is not only talk about Puritan history, uh, their own experience in England. I'm, by the way, I'm only talking about English Puritans. There are Scottish Puritans, and there's Welsh Puritans, and there's Irish Puritans, and there's American Puritans. But my focus is going to be England. And um, uh, the, one of the central themes, uh, obviously, I want to talk about uh, people, uh, history, but also a sub-theme is their thinking about the Christian life and godliness and holiness and sanctification. Um, so things like uh, the fear of God, uh, Christ-centeredness, scripture, prayer, evangelism. Uh, people I'm going to look at, uh, Oliver Cromwell, uh, that might surprise you. Uh, Oliver Cromwell was a Puritan. In some ways, he's a quintessential Puritan. Um, and I like Cromwell because it gives you a good illustration of how uh, a, a, a Puritan of that era sought to live out his faith in the public square. Uh, did he have problems? Yeah, we'll, we'll see some issues. Uh, but would that we had politicians like Cromwell who would cite scripture in their speeches in Parliament and then argue from biblical principles as to how the country should be governed. He's had a, very, a lot of bad press over the years, um, especially in the 20th century. And uh, uh, the 19th century, I think, warmed to him in many ways. But uh, he is a remarkable figure. And then uh, Brilliana Harley. I may have mentioned her last in the fall. I didn't. Good. Okay. Um, the Puritans had a penchant for weird names, naming their kids. We've still got some of those names with us. Hope, uh, Faith, Charity. Uh, nobody ever named their girls that before the Puritans. Uh, but the Puritans also went further than this. Uh, so there is um, a man named Barebones, or Barbon. Um, his um, first name was Praise God Barebones. And uh, he was a member of Parliament. He had a brother. <laughs> uh, Christ came into the world to save sinners. Barebones. That was his, that was his name. I have no idea what his mom called him. <laughs> you know, you can, you can abbreviate that whatever way you want. It's odd. Um, Brilliana Harley's father um, was the governor of uh, Brielle in Holland. Uh, during the Dutch War of Liberation from the Spanish government, the Spaniards had basically were ruling Holland. And during the 1560s, 1570s, the Dutch Protestant evangelicals waged a war of liberation against their Spanish Catholic overlords and uh, helping them with the British English. And the Dutch gave to the English three 
or four seaports along the North Sea so the British could easily bring in arms and even soldiers. And they actually had English governors in these towns. The War of Liberation ended, and the Dutch asked the British, okay, that's great, you helped us. Uh, maybe you could leave now. And the, the, the English kind of liked this idea of being able to bring ports. They could bring stuff over to the continent without taxes, etc. So they decided, they told the Dutch, we'll keep them for a few years. So they eventually did give them back to the Dutch in the 1630s, 1640s. And uh, the governor of Briel, or Bril, uh, in this period was uh, 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 Brilliana's father. And he thought it was, this is a, there is a pun intended here, he thought it was brilliant that uh, he would name his daughter after the town where she was born. She was born then in Holland. Um, she's a very significant figure in, in some ways. Um, her uh, grandson would be the first prime minister of England. And there is a street in London called Harley Street very wealthy street for uh, upscale uh, uh, medical practitioners, and that's named after her grandson. Um, uh, she's a re I think she's a remarkable figure, and we'll, we've got about 400 of her letters, which we're going to look at uh, as a Puritan mother, helping her son, in particular, uh, uh, live a Christian life. Uh, John Owen, that name should be familiar to you, a great Puritan leader, uh, probably probably the greatest of the Puritan theologians in some ways. Um, he was described in his own day as the Calvin of England, and a uh, very important figure. And then if I were to ask you, name one Puritan, I imagine you would come up with John Bunyan. Uh, Bunyan is a Baptist, but he's a Baptist with an interesting twist. He is an open communion, that is anybody can partake of the Lord's Supper if you're a believer in Christ. And he's an open membership Baptist. He did not believe that you had to be baptized as a believer to be a member of his church, which is not the majority view of Baptists at the time. Um, he also illustrates that Baptists uh, come out of Puritanism. And so that's a, if you would ask me, why, why, why study these people? Well, one key reason is that's our roots as Baptistic believers. Uh, this is uh, where we come from, uh, by and large. Um, Bunyan's most famous book, obviously, uh, is Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, I will mention it. Uh, we're not going to go into detail about it. It's something else I want to focus on with uh, Bunyan. Um, I don't like allegory. I've mentioned this before in certain places, and people have had all kinds of interesting, interesting questions about my spirituality because I've never been able to read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress all the way through. I've read bits of it. So I've... I've even as recent as a couple of years ago at Redeemer, I mentioned this in a class, and one of the students brought an abridged version. <laughs> and I said, look, I've had students give me over the years uh, cartoon ver comic versions, children's versions, uh, movies. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm immovable. Uh, anyway, um, we will look at Bunyan, but... We won't be looking at his Pilgrim's Progress. If you love Pilgrim's Progress, that's great. And in fact, uh, large numbers of people around the world have loved it. Uh, so I'm in a distinct minority uh, on that subject. So the timing is, I, I thought the timing was seven, which was actually good because 
The I got here about five to seven. There wasn't a soul up here, and I thought I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> but it was good because I forgot uh, the file. I brought the wrong uh, flash drive, so I, my wife was able to send it to me. So there was a, a purpose in it. Okay, let me go back uh, to looking at what is Puritanism, uh, the term Puritan, and then I'm going to do an a recap of the English Reformation. And I'm not sure we'll get through all this stuff. If we get down to the number six, it'll be great. Uh, I'm going to do a recap of the English Reformation, very, very quick, and then uh, particularly focus on two things, Mary I and her persecution of evangelicals, because um, she will burn at the stake around 300 uh, evangelical believers. Uh, over the years, that number got exaggerated, but it's probably around 300. Um, it was horrifying. Uh, England and other European countries had experienced uh, the execution of those who fell out of favor with the Roman Catholic Church uh, during the Middle Ages. But it was one person here, one person there. The idea within the space of five years, around 300 citizens, including all the leading bishops she could get her hands on, uh, would be burned at the stake. Uh, was horrifying. And uh, about a thousand men and women, key figures in the what would become the Anglican Church, left England and fled to the continent. And uh, they would find refuge, most of them would find refuge, in Calvinistic towns. They ended up not going to Lutheran towns, but reformed towns like Geneva. And the men, when they come back to England during the reign of Elizabeth I, they will come back with distinctly Calvinistic, reformed ideas of how church should be done. And that's the genesis of Puritanism. So if we get down to number five, that'd be great. Number six is the first controversy. The Puritans will be engaged in three controversies before the 1620s. And the first one is known as the Vestiarian Controversy. And the controversy has to do, what kind of clothing should a minister wear when he's leading worship? And you might think it's, oh, <laughs> you know, it's inconsequential. But as we'll see, it becomes a big issue. First of all, though, I want to talk about what is Puritanism. And then I want to talk about the term Puritan. Uh, what is Puritanism? Uh, when we've gone through it, you'll think, well, it's pretty easy to define. But um, I, I'm coming at this with having thought about it for quite a while. And I'm also, if, you're, if you have any idea of the debates about what is Puritanism, you'll be able to figure out, oh, he's taking a certain side in this debate. One side, one group of people, scholars, have argued that Puritanism is a movement within the Church of England. We're going to talk about the Church of England in a minute, uh, coming out of the Reformation. In other words, Puritanism was an attempt to further reform the Church of England. Uh, they were not happy with certain things that continue to be done in worship in the Church of England. And that view, which I don't deny, that is true, but that view basically restricts Puritanism to the period when the Puritans are in the Church of England, which is roughly 1560 to 1660, about 100 years. If that's what Puritanism is, John Owen's not a Puritan, John Bunyan's not a Puritan, uh, because these men's careers are basically after that period, by and large. 
So the first view is that Puritanism is a reform movement within the Church of England. It's an ecclesiastical movement. It's got to do with doing church. Um, and it's very heavily invested in politics. That's the first view. The other major view, which is the one that I lean towards, is that Puritanism is a movement of spirituality. It's a vision of the Christian life. And it begins in the 1560s. It has roots earlier, as we'll see. And it really runs to about the 1690s. By the time you get to about 1700, in the British Isles, Puritanism has run out of steam. And um, you see this in the history of the church. You see movements of revival and reform. And if they go four or five generations, that's tremendous. Uh, you see this with churches. Uh, churches usually hit problems in their third generation and then their fifth generation. So about 70 to 100 years in, it, often issues arise. And then again, about 130, 140 years in to, to churches. And as you well know, churches are planted, they, they develop, they flourish. And then for a variety of reasons, they start to decline and eventually die. And uh, there's always a number of reasons for this. And Puritanism is no different. It begins in the 1560s, um, probably hits its heyday in the 1640s, 1650s, and then begins to encounter problems. And definitely by the 1690s, it's running, it's losing its steam. And you have other movements that will replace it down the road. So for me, Puritanism is not simply a reform movement within the Church of England. It's much broader than that. So that means then Baptists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians can be included. And it's not simply Anglicans. All of the early Puritans are Anglicans. But Puritanism is broader than that. It's got to do with a vision of the Christian life and perspectives on the Christian life, which we're actually going to flesh out in uh, these talks uh, together. Um, so that's what is Puritanism. Uh, the term Puritan is, has had an interesting history. Um, if I said to you, I think you're puritanical, uh, you would not hear that, I suspect, as a compliment. And uh, a number of years ago, I remember when our troops were fighting in Afghanistan, uh, they had a picture of the Taliban. And uh, the caption under it uh, was something to the effect, uh, here are four fighters of the puritanical Taliban. And I thought, There's a, that's an oxymoron for you. I mean, uh, the Taliban are Muslim, uh, Puritans are Christians. So there's a contradiction in terms right there. But that word has become uh, to mean something like uh, narrow-minded, bigoted. Uh, one man, H.L. Mencken, a journalist in the 1920s, said a Puritan is somebody who is upset that somebody somewhere is having fun. <laughs> and, uh, it's, become a very, it's become a negative term. So puritanic, puritanical, uh, Puritan have in the history of the, of the West, in the history of Christianity, in the history of the church, become something of a negative term. And a lot of that has got to do with their opponents. And we'll get to this in the, in the 1660s, uh, the Puritans will be forced out of the Church of England. Uh, Church of England at the time had about 8,000 churches. Uh, 2,000 of the ministers of those churches will be expelled. 
in one day, uh, August the 24th, uh, 1662. Uh, there were, a law was passed, it came into effect that day, and from that point on, if you were not in complete favor with uh, the Church of England's worship policies, you were out. And about 2,000 ministers left uh, the Church of England. And uh, their opponents, uh, for about 30 years, heavily persecuted them. They never executed any of them, but uh, ministers were imprisoned. Uh, so if, if this was a gathering of uh, Puritan ministers, say 1670, uh, first of all, this will be illegal. Uh, but if this were, uh, every one of you would have been in prison at some point. And uh, prison was not, a, they, they weren't executed, but for numbers of these men, prison was a death sentence. And I could give you easily a half a dozen names of Baptist ministers who basically died in these prisons along with Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Quakers. And then a variety of other weird little groups, we'll touch on these, uh, people like the Levelers, the Diggers, uh, the Muggletonians. Uh, they're a fascinating little group. Uh, the last Muggletonian died around 1960, but we'll, we'll get to that down the road. Um, so the term Puritan is a negative term. So I'm not sure what you think of when you hear the word Puritan. Um, you re need to recognize that one of the great uh, repositories of Christian books are those written by the Puritans. And uh, without a doubt, we would have differences with the Puritans on certain issues. But if there's any group of men and women in the 17th century, English speaking, with whom we would identify, it would be these men and women. They're just in many ways remarkable Christians who seek to take the gospel and apply it not only to worship, which is where they are after their initial conflict to the Church of England, but the entirety of the Christian life. So let me do a recap, and uh, I'll have time for questions uh, at certain points, but especially at the end. Let me do a recap of uh, the Reformation in England. So the fountainhead of the English Reformation is this book, uh, which is the New Testament. Um, it's the New Testament as translated by that man, William Tyndale. Uh, Tyndale's been described as a proto-Puritan. Um, I'm not sure that, that that's a, 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 it's a... It's a problem to describe somebody uh, by a title of a movement that comes after them. Um, just as it's a problem uh, to describe somebody many decades, centuries later by a title, say, Puritan. So C.H. Spurgeon has been described as the last of the Puritans. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the last of the Puritans. J.I. Packer, the last of the Puritans. Uh, as a historian, I find those things kind of problematic. Uh, the Puritan movement has definite historic limits. These men come years after, and in Tyndale's case, quite a number of years before. He's not technically a Puritan. He's got similarities. He's an evangelical. He's committed to gospel, the gospel. He's committed to evangelism. He's committed to living his life according to the scriptures but he's not technically what we call a Puritan. But there's no doubt that this book is at the heart of the English Reformation. It's the heart of all the Reformations in Europe. And uh, Tyndale translated it in, out of Greek in the mid-1520s, not in England, 
He couldn't find anybody in England who would support him in terms of finances or protect him. And so he ended up going to the European continent. Initially went to Wittenberg, where Martin Luther was, but that was Saxony, where Wittenberg is, is way off in eastern, uh, eastern Germany. And the, these Bibles being translated into English need to get back to England. And the best way to get them back to England was on rivers. And the great river in Europe was the Rhine, flowing out of the Alps, at where Basel is, coming down into the German plain, and then take, wending its way uh, to ultimately Holland, and then issuing into the North Sea. And along the Rhine River were a number of great uh, urban centers that had major print facilities. Uh, and one of them initially was Cologne, or Cologne, uh, not far from the Dutch border. Uh, he initially went there. It's a Roman Catholic town. So every time he walked the street, he was in danger of his life. He was able to convince a printer to start printing the New Testament. He was betrayed to the authorities, barely escaped with his life, and the printing never got completed. He went downriver to a town called Worms, spelled W-O-R-M-S, but not, not pronounced Worms. It's Worms. And uh, there he uh, met a printer named Peter Schurfer, who had been, his father had been trained by Johann Gutenberg, the inventor of the printing press in Mainz, in Germany. And Schurfer was a Catholic, but hey, this is a moneymaker. And so he printed Tyndale's New Testament, and this is the beginning of the New Testament. And we looked at this last, uh, 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 in the fall. And uh, this comes out in 1526. He revises it twice, two more, uh, another two times. The final edition is 1534. That edition uh, is 90% of the New Testament of Tyndale is in the King James Version Bible. And uh, it's an absolutely fabulous uh, translation in many, many ways. And it lays the foundation for the English Reformation. Uh, there's probably 30,000 of these printed. Uh, England had 1.5 million people, 30% literacy rate. So around 500,000. We are aware that often these, these New Testaments were read by 5, 10, 15 people. So you do the arithmetic, and 30,000 uh, people did not have multiple Bibles. They would have one Bible. So significant numbers of English men and women read the Bible for the first time in their lives in their own language. And this, it's no doubt that Tyndale was used by God to lay the foundation for uh, the, uh, the English Reformation in many, many ways. Um, the English Reformation is complex because it's, if this was all, it was a story of the gospel being translated, the Bible being translated into English, preaching of the gospel, people being saved, churches being reformed. Uh, that's a fairly simple story in one sense. But it's complex because of the monarchy. And uh, here are the, the monarchs of the Tudor, uh, House of Tudor, founded by this man, Henry VII, in 1485, after a vicious civil war in England called the Wars of the Roses. 30 years, nobility killing each other. Large numbers of nobility died on the battlefield during the Wars of the Roses. Henry Tudor, a Welshman, was able to 
obtained the crown at the Battle of Bosworth. If you took Richard III in high school, the William Shakespeare's play, um, he depicts the fall of Richard III and uh, the accession of Henry Tudor. Um, he would die in 1509 to be succeeded by his second son. His eldest son, Arthur, had died. His second son, Henry VIII, uh, didn't look like that then. Uh, he was a uh, uh, strapping, six foot, six foot one uh, individual in a day when the average height was five feet. So I would have been on the tall side <laughs> in that period. Um, so a fabulous athlete, uh, great archer, uh, participated in tournaments of you know, knights knocking each other off horses. Um, pretty dangerous occupation, but anyway, our sport. Um, a poet, uh, gifted in music, uh, wrote theology, he wrote a book against Luther, for which the Pope gave him the title Defender of the Faith. You sometimes see it on older coins of our late queen. Uh, it'll have, it'll, it'll have around the outside uh, something like uh, DG, by the grace of God, De Gratia, uh, Regina, just maybe an R, and then an FD, Defender of the Faith, Fide Defensor. And uh, even though Henry will break with the Roman Catholic Church, he keeps the title. And, um, but he's got a big problem. He, he marries his elder, bro his elder brother's widow, uh, Catherine of Aragon, a Spanish Roman Catholic widow. Henry was very astute. He realized England was a small, somewhat defenseless power in Europe. The great nations of Europe were the Spaniards and the French. And so the English don't like the French, and it's mutual. <laughs> and so he allied with Spain, which and alliances in those days usually meant royal marriages. And so he married his eldest son to Catherine of Aragon, but his eldest son was dead within the year of TB. And so Henry writes to the Pope, Henry VII, uh, do you think I could get my uh, daughter-in-law, now widowed, married to him, my second son? And he stressed, we have no way of knowing this. I, maybe some historians do. I don't. Um, we have, he stressed to the Pope the marriage was never consummated. Uh, even though they'd been married for a year, well, who knows. Uh, and so the Pope said, he received a sum of money to give an, an annulment. So the first marriage never actually existed. And so Henry marries her. And everything's going honky-dory in one sense. Uh, he has this woman, Mary I, uh, from that marriage. Um, Catherine is a very devout Roman Catholic. And um, Henry wants a son. He doesn't believe a woman could govern England. Uh, the last time a woman had been on the throne in England, uh, Matilda, back in the 1100s, there'd been civil war. So a woman cannot rule England. It's got to be a man. So the problem is his wife bears a number of stillborn children, number of miscarriages, no son. Finally, Henry's reading in Leviticus, and he comes across a verse, Thou shalt not marry thy brother's wife, which has got to do with divorce, not being widowed, but Henry takes it, aha, now I know the problem. My marriage is under the curse of God. So he writes to the Pope, 
um, uh, Clement, I forget Clement the seventh, I forget the, the number. And uh, do you think you could give me an annulment? <clears throat> and um, which would mean they've never technically been married. They've lived in sin. And Mary is illegitimate. The Pope would have done it, but he's got a big problem. Catherine of Aragon is the aunt of the most powerful man in Europe, the King of Spain, Charles V. And Charles V hears about Henry's proposition, and he tells the Pope, if you give that annulment and shame my aunt in the face of all of Europe, it'll be the absolute last thing you ever do as Pope. And uh, Charles had already marched his troops down into northern Italy in some battles, and the Pope was scared silly of him. So he... Uh, 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 tries to uh, play them off against each other, tries to basically play for time. Maybe one of them will forget about the issue. Maybe one of them will die. Uh, neither. And finally, in uh, 50, early 1530s, Henry solves the problem. If I was the head of the church, I could grant my own divorce. Kind of like, you know, recently I remember reading about uh, the president, former president of the United States possibly ended up in prison. But if he's elected president, he could pardon, pardon himself. It's absolutely bizarre. So, but we've been here before with Henry. Henry, if I was the head of the church, I could grab my own divorce. Fine. So he breaks with Rome over the issue of the marriage. What does he believe theologically? He is not a Protestant. But he is broken with Rome. He eventually ends up excommunicated from the Roman church. Um, and he marries uh, uh, Catherine of Aragon's lady-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn. And there's a lot of fascination with Anne Boleyn. I'm, I'm not so sure why. Uh, and he has uh, this woman, uh, Elizabeth I, uh, by her. I was wrong. Actually, that's Jane Grey. This is Mary. Forgive me. That's Mary there. And this is Elizabeth. Elizabeth is a remarkable queen. She inherits her father's hair, right? She was a redhead. Um, by the way, redheads are not looked on with favor in the Middle Ages. Um, usually Judas in pictures of the Last Supper is depicted as a redhead. Um, even, in, even in the last century, I was reading re something recently where if, if you're a woman and a redhead in the late 1800s, it was said to be social suicide. Uh, anyway. Uh, so uh, Elizabeth will, is, is uh, the daughter of Anne Boleyn. Um, Henry wants a son. And um, Anne gets pregnant a second time and has a stillborn son. Henry's getting antsy at this point. This is now the 1530s. Henry's in his 40s, and time is marching on. He needs a son. And it, it is evident now that he concocted a story of of Elizabeth of Anne Boleyn's engaging in adultery, in fact incest with her brother, and he chops her head off, and he marries her lady-in-waiting Jane Seymour. Uh, I mean, if you were the queen, you you'd be pretty concerned about your ladies-in-waiting, and uh, he finally has his son Edward. Uh, she dies in childbirth, and then there are three more wives, and. Um, it's the, the Reformation then is deeply tied up with Henry's marriage and his, all of his politics. So 
Um, in order of succession, Henry dies in 1547, and his heir is Edward. And if Edward doesn't marry and doesn't have children, his, his heir is Mary. That alone should tell you... Now, Edward will turn out to be a Protestant, very strong Protestant, evangelical. But that tells you that Henry really isn't concerned for the ongoing Reformation in England. Otherwise, he would have written her out of the will. By this point in time, which is 1547, she's 31. She's an absolutely hardcore Roman Catholic and cannot stand the Protestants because they led to her mother's divorce. When her mother was dying, uh, she wrote to Henry and pled with him, please give me a royal funeral. And he basically said, buzz off. And uh, he had some monks bury her in Peterborough Cathedral. She insisted, I'm a I'm the daughter of the king of Spain. That's befitting me. And uh, 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 Mary never forgot these things. When Mary does become queen, she'll move her mother's body from Peterborough Cathedral down to Westminster Abbey. And in fact, uh, the, the one time I've been in Peterborough Cathedral, I remember going around um, a pole uh, in kind of an obscure part of the cathedral, and there was the grave of, of, uh, of, um, of uh, Catherine of Aragon, the first grave. Now she's buried, obviously, later in uh, Westminster. Um, so Henry, you know, he, he's really not committed to the Reformation in that sense. Um, and so he's got a Protestant who will succeed him. If he dies without children, then his half-sister. If she dies without children, then her half-sister. And if she dies without children, this woman, Lady Jane Grey, his great-niece. She's the uh, daughter, granddaughter of his sister, his favorite sister. She is a very strong evangelical. So Edward becomes king. He's a very weak, sickly boy. He's 10 years old when he becomes king. He will die at 16. He writes a number of articles, about 100. Uh, little kind of essays, uh, religious essays. It's very clear that he has embraced the principal truths of the Reformation, uh, that our understanding of who God is and how to live the Christian life is drawn from the Bible and the Bible only, ultimately. Secondly, that we are saved by faith and faith alone. Thirdly, that Christ alone is our Savior, not Christ and Mary, Christ and the saints, etc. And we're saved by grace. It's not grace and works. It's grace. Grace issues and works. It's never alone, but it is grace, ultimately, that saves us. And Edward is very committed to the Reformation. Calvin writes to him, calls him, uh, you're a young Josiah. And, uh, but sadly, he dies. He, he contracts measles in early 1553, and never a strong boy. Uh, it goes into TB, and he dies in the fall of 1553. When he's dying, he changes his father's will. And he removes her from the will, and he makes his uh, cousin, Lady Jane Grey, his heir. She is not told that. And uh, when news of her cousin's death reaches her and she's proclaimed as queen, she faints. She has no idea 
that she's the, now the queen. She's queen for about two weeks, uh, signs two, two official statements. There's no way Mary is going to take this line down. Uh, she raises a small army, marches to London, imprisons Jane, at which point Jane, who is 16 years old, says, uh, can I go home now? It's a very interesting little comment. Jane's kind of caught up in the politics of the day. She's a very committed evangelical. Mary knows that. One time Mary and Jane were out for a walk, and they passed behind a church where if there had been an altar in the church, Roman Catholic altar, uh, it's at that point in the, the outside of the building. And Mary kneels because when you come into a Roman Catholic church, uh, if you're a devout Catholic, you kneel uh, to the altar because at the altar there is the body and blood of Christ in the re reserved piece of bread, right? And so Mary kneels. J Lady Jane says to her, what are you doing? She says, well, I'm, I'm showing reverence for our Lord. And Mary then begins to explain to her, well, there's no way Jesus' actual body is in a piece of bread. And uh, it's a very interesting little story. Those sorts of things would have stuck in Mary's head. And eventually she will execute Jane in 1554, which is a very interesting, um, there's a very interesting account which Jane draws up uh, prior, a, few, a few days prior to her execution. Um, you can still go to the Tower of London. If you ever go to the Tower of London, there is a huge exhibit. It's kind of a round circular thing um, made out of, uh, I, I don't think it's glass. It must be some sort of a plastic, see-through plastic, in which there are inscribed the names of a number of prominent people whose heads were, decapit they were decapitated right there on that spot. Um, if you get a tour, uh, you'll actually go into the, the chapel at, called Ad Winkula, um, and under the floor, I remember us being there, and these, these, the guys who take you around really try to, try to uh, I think they're kind of frustrated actors because they really kind of ham it up at points. And uh, they really kind of emphasize, you know, under, under the floor we are sitting are the bones of, you know, 30, 40, 50 people. And they rattle off a few names. And uh, Jane's buried there. Her body would have been uh, placed there. Along with Anne Boleyn, um, Catherine Howard, uh, uh, Henry's fifth wife, who was a Roman Catholic, who he did catch in flagrante in concept of adultery and chopped her head off. Uh, Henry's a, he's kind of a Saddam Hussein, uh, you know, Tudor Saddam. He's a, he's a, he's a sadistic individual. Um, anyway, um, uh, Mary becomes queen then in 1553. Uh, Jane is executed. Elizabeth is put under house arrest. And there are times Elizabeth fears for her life because she is a committed Protestant. And Mary begins a reign of terror. Oh, sorry. Uh, there's a full length. Uh, you can see the similarity with the other portrait. It actually might be taken from that. Um, number of little interesting things here. This is the Tudor rose here. It's a red rose with a white center. Uh, it identifies the house of Tudor. And um, Mary begins to seize all the key evangelicals. She's convinced 
that the Reformation in England is a plot of maybe 500, three to 500 Protestant leaders. She executes them or kicks them out the country. England will follow her back into the Church of Rome. And she has miscalculated big time. Um, she's married to the King of Spain, Philip II. And she encourages Philip to send over to England what is known as the Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition was created in the 1400s. Uh, during, from around 700 to 1400, the Spanish church and the Spanish kingdom was involved in a long war with the Muslims, known as the Moors. Uh, Islam had conquered all, most of Spain, except for the area where the Basques live, up in the northeast. And then from around 800, there was a long process of what's called the Reconquista, where the, the Christian armies, quote-unquote, will recapture all of Spain. And one of the things that they establish once they have recaptured Spain and driven all the Muslims out is they establish an, uh, a body uh, called the Inquisition to make sure that Muslims are not masquerading as Christians. It's designed to root out Muslims who are hiding as Christians. It becomes a tool of the Roman Church during the Middle Ages, during the Reformation period, to also root out Protestants. And so she brings over from Spain the Inquisition, and a number of key people are burned. Uh, Nicholas Ridley, uh, a bishop. Hugh Latimer, the uh, bishop of Worcester at one point. Uh, that's where they're, they have wood around them. And uh, Ridley, the wood around Ridley is green. It doesn't, it's not burning. And he yells out. I mean, these, these are horrific things. Yells out at one point, I cannot burn. And uh, Latimer says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And um, men and women watching these people being burned did not come to the conviction that Mary had, which is these are dreadful, godless heretics. Rather, they came to the opposite. That is, what is it that enables these men and women to die with such peace? Uh, John Hooper, Bishop of Gloucester, was burned. Uh, these are only four of three, about 300. This is Thomas Cramner. Uh, Cramner was incarcerated for about three years, um, uh, tortured, uh, brainwashed. He actually signed two statements renouncing all his views as an evangelical. And then when he was finally brought out to uh, publicly declare he was now a loyal son of the Roman Church, um, Mary was going to burn him anyway because uh, he was the person to some degree who had engineered her mother's divorce. And um, uh, during the point where he should have been announcing his belief in all the Roman Catholic doctrines, he actually uh, declares the opposite. Uh, you can actually go to the place where that happened. It's St. Mary the Virgin Church in Oxford, right in the heart of Oxford. It's the church years later John Wesley would preach from, where C.S. Lewis would preach. It's a very famous church. And uh, uh, Cramner basically came out and basically said, uh, the truth of the matter is, the Pope's the Antichrist, and I denounce all of his views. And he said that when I come to the, the fire, this hand, right hand, that 
signed any document denying biblical truth, I'll put it first in the fire. And you can actually see that here. It's a, a 16th century print. And uh, there was a Spanish bystander who was absolutely amazed. Uh, Cramner took his hand as the fire had yet to reach the, his person, and he stuck his hand in the fire and let it burn right down to the bone. And um, it would be Cramner who would write about a year before this, while he was in prison, to another evangelical named uh, Pietro Materi, an Italian we know as, as Peter Martyr. And he said, pray for me that I would have grace to persevere to the end. Um, Mary was thinking, obviously, that she was going to destroy uh, the Reformation. She deepens it. Um, instead of men and women thinking that these people are godless heretics, they come to the opposite conclusion, that these men and women are men and women of God. And um, she will die in 1558. But during her time as queen, these people are burned, but about a thousand others flee England. And they make their way to places of, of refuge on the continent, and many of them end up in John Calvin's Geneva. And uh, uh, in Geneva, they will begin to, to a new translation of the Bible called the Geneva Bible. And this is a 1599, the last major edition of it. Um, it's, uh, this, is the, this is the Bible of the early Puritans, not the King James Version. King James Version didn't come out to 1611. Uh, the Bibles love this version. Sorry, the Puritans love this version uh, because... It not only had the scriptures translated, it had with most profitable annotations upon all the hard places and other things of great importance. It had all kinds of side notes and it had a huge concordance at the back of it. It was a major study Bible. And um, it was kind of like a theological library in one book. And uh, the Puritans loved it shaped Puritan thinking. For instance, in the passage in Exodus 1, where the midwives disobey Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh tells the midwives to slay the Hebrew males upon birth because he's fearful of the growth of Israel. And uh, they don't. Uh, they tell him, you know, when we get to deliver the, the little babies, <laughs> the Hebrew women are, are they, have, they have fantastic births. And the baby's already been born, and we don't have a chance to kill the baby. And um, uh, along the side margin, it says, and we actually, we, we probably know the names of some of the people who wrote these margin comments. William Whittingham, who is the brother-in-law of John Knox, the Scottish Puritan. Uh, we're not looking at the Scottish Puritans, but the Scottish Puritan probably was at a big hand in those notes. Along the side, it says, were the Hebrew midwives right to disobey Pharaoh? And the answer is, yes. It is better to obey God than man. But they should not have dissembled. They should not have lied. But you can see why a king would not like a comment like that. That's very important down the road. Uh, or, for instance, uh, the Puritans, again, there's all kinds of myths, I think, about the Puritans. Uh, it's the Puritans who facilitate the growth in, among English-speaking people 
that parents should never force their children to marry someone they don't love. There's a passage in Proverbs where it's dealing with marriage, and there's a Puritan, Puritan little comment. Should parents encourage their children into marriages uh, where there is not love, where they don't love their spouse? And the answer is no. And so there's a, it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating book in many, many respects. Um, Mary dies in 1558 of ovarian cancer. She actually thinks she's uh, pregnant, but she's dying. And she's succeeded by this woman, Elizabeth I, who is queen 1558 to 1603. Uh, there are a number of great kings and queens in English history. Uh, I'm not sure where your political views lie. Uh, I'm a pretty strong monarchist. Uh, Obviously, there's problems with monarchs from time to time. Uh, but there's also, I think, um, having spent a lot of time in the United States uh, and looking at their governmental structures and ours with a constitutional monarchy, uh, there's something to be said for a constitutional monarchy uh, that we have, a parliamentary democracy that we have. Um, if you lose confidence in the state governments, there's still a representative uh, beyond that, which is the monarch. And we've been very fortunate in having Elizabeth II, just a remar absolutely remarkable queen. I won't get into whether or not she was actually a Christian, but an absolutely remarkable queen. Uh, how Charles will fare, we'll see. Uh, Elizabeth is also a remarkable queen. Uh, the, the, the strength and power that Britain becomes, the British Empire, is largely owing to Elizabeth in many, many, many ways. She is a professing Protestant, a professing evangelical. She is theologically a Calvinist. Uh, in her early reign, she has correspondence with John Calvin. Uh, she likes Calvin. Uh, he likes writing to her because that will encourage her to allow Protestants to flourish in England. Uh, the correspondence breaks down when she reads a book written by John Knox called A Trumpet Blast, against the monstrous regiment of women. And John Knox, a Scottish reformer, was living in Geneva, and he did not believe that a woman, particularly Scotland, and the woman he's got in mind is Mary, Queen of Scots. There's a number of Marys. So this is not Mary the first. That's the Mary just died. He did not believe that a woman should rule Scotland, Mary, Queen of Scots. So he writes a book, A Trumpet Blast, and waking you up, against the monstrous regiment of women, namely Mary. Uh, the problem is, Elizabeth reads the book, and she thinks he's written it against her. He has not. Uh, but it causes Calvin all kinds of problems. She writes to Calvin and says, what on earth are you doing allowing that man to publish that book in Geneva? And we actually have a letter of John Knox writing to, to Calvin saying, please forgive me for having caused you all kinds of grief about this book. He didn't back down from his views, though. So this is very interesting. Theologically, the queen agrees with the Puritans. What she does not agree on is who has the final authority in the church. So the Puritans have been in Geneva. And what they've seen in Geneva is the final authority in the church are the elders. The queen does... <laughs> Uh, but number one, she's got bishops, 
right? And uh, this room is about 80 people in it, Jamie. Yeah, 70, 80. Uh, there's about 25 bishops in England. She could get them all in a room like this and tell them what to do. It's brilliant. She's very much her, her father's daughter. Uh, you, you don't brook her. Uh, she doesn't chop people's heads off normally like her father. But, so when the Archbishop of Canterbury, Edmund Grindle, said to her one day, Madam, you need to remember, you are a mortal creature who will one day give an account to an immortal God. That was the last words he said publicly. She put him under house arrest for the next 12 years. And he never preached again uh, or spoke in public again. Uh, so if she could get 25 bishops in the room, it's brilliant. Okay, this is the queen. Boys, this is what we're going to do in the church. Uh, obviously, that colloquial language is early 21st century. Um, the idea that the power rests in the hands of the elders, there's about 10,000 elders in England. There's no, there's no room big enough to get them all in. There's no way she's ever going to go for that. That's the model that the Puritans will have of how to run the church. The elders have the final say in the life of the church. For the queen, it's the bishops whom she appoints. She has the final say. Under God, she's very convinced one day she will stand before a holy God and have to give an account. No one else will have to give it of how she guided England along a path of godliness. Um, this is a much later portrait. This is the Spanish Armada portrait, as it's known. And uh, Philip of Spain, Mary's widowed husband, uh, still thinks he's king of England. And about uh, 30 years after his death, he launches the huge Spanish Armada, uh, one of the, the largest invasion fleet that had been seen in Europe to that point in time. Not one of the ships lands in England. They are all destroyed by what later Englishmen will say with a, with a, were Protestant winds. God blew up these winds, they will argue, to save England. And they all, most of those ships never make it back to Spain. They get shipwrecked. Uh, a lot of them end up in Ireland. So you have a lot of Irish families in later years with Spanish names. So you can imagine uh, where the, some of those sailors ended up. Um, so when the Puritans come back, they, they're thrilled. You know, Mary's dead. They now have what they call their Deborah. We have a godly queen like Deborah. Remember, she rescued Israel. Uh, our Deborah, they're happy with her for about three years, four years. And then there's a huge controversy blows up. What should you wear when you're conducting worship? Elizabeth said, well, you know, there are proper vestments. Uh, it so happened the vestments looked like what ministers wore during the time when the Roman Catholic Church was dominant in England. And the Puritans said, absolutely no way. We're, we're, not, we're not wearing those clothes. And uh, for many years I thought, well, it's really kind of a minor thing, you know. Um, but take this, take this as a, a kind of parallel. Let's say you're Jewish. And in 1934, 35, you see the handwriting, you're Jewish in Nazi Germany, what will be Nazi Germany, and you see the handwriting on the wall, and you leave Nazi Germany, 
and thereby save yourself, and you come back, say, late 40s, after the Second World War. And you're walking down a road in Berlin, and you see a policeman coming towards you wearing the epaulets of the SS. Would you be upset? I think you would. I don't know if you remember Prince Harry. Uh, went to a, some dress-up party and wore the costume of a Nazi, Nazi uniform, and there was a huge brouhaha, and rightly so, because that uniform represents something. In fact, in Germany today, unless you're in the movies, you cannot wear Nazi regalia. Uh, you can't do the Nazi salute, uh, a variety of things, because of what these things mean. They're not innocent things. And so I can understand where the Puritans are coming from. Um, and this is a letter. This is Edmund Grindle. Yeah, at that time, he was the Bishop of London. And he's writing it to one of the Queen's uh, advisors, telling him... <laughs> People in my church, and mostly women, are saying, we are not going to go to church if the minister's wearing those clothing that the Roman Catholic ministers wore. And in one year, 37 ministers in London were suspended for refusing to wear the proper vestments. It's a huge controversy. But the controversy raises a bigger issue, and that is, who has got authority in the church to dictate how we do church? And so that's now the second major controversy. The first one is this 1560s controversy about vestments. But the deeper issue is, why should we obey the queen? Does the queen have the right to dictate about the inner life of the church? She thought she did. The Puritans, by and large, said no. This man is Thomas Cartwright. He was a professor at Cambridge. And uh, he had been in Geneva, and he, in 1570, is teaching through the book of Acts, and he emphasizes there is no such thing in the book of Acts as bishops. The bishops in the book of Acts are elders. The divine form of church government is Presbyterian. But once you raise that question, how should the church be governed, it was a very short time before some people saw, oh no, in the New Testament, surely there's congregational church government. In other words, the final locus of authority in a church is the congregation. And some of these congregationalists will separate from the Church of England. Uh, they'll end up in New England. They'll initially go to Holland and then to New England. And it's out of these separatists and congregationalists that the Baptists come. We'll look at this a bit later. I'm kind of going through this fairly quickly. But this is the second major controversy um, uh, in the Puritans. And this is a long-standing one, because what the Puritans want is they want to scrap all the bishops. The, Pur the, the Presbyterians still want the idea of a state church, right? Everybody in England belongs to the church. Everybody in England gets baptized as a baby. That's entrance to the church. Uh, their difference with the queen and her bishops is they want to scrap the whole concept of uh, Episcopal church government, bishops running the church, and definitely the queen. And from, I think, our point of view, whether you're Presbyterian or Congregationist, they're right. Nowhere in the New Testament does Paul write to the emperor in Rome and say, you know, we got problems, you know, like in Corinth, right? He's got all kinds of problems in Corinth, and he doesn't write to the emperor Nero and say, look, could you help us? No. 
And in other words, you notice what's going on here. There's beginning the idea of separation of church and state. There, these are realms that God appoints. The state is a God-appointed realm, right? But it has, it has its purview, and likewise the church. And uh, they're, they're, they're moving towards that. They're not completely there. Um, so let me take questions. Let me just tell you where we're going next week. Uh, we'll look at uh, the King James Version, and then particularly I'm going to look at this man, Richard Greenham of Dry Drayton. Don't be, don't be upset. Oh, I've never heard of that guy. Um, this is the church he was in. Uh, I thought I'd include two pictures, one relevant to our season. <laughs> uh, this is what it looks like in the summer. I was there this past summer. Uh, sadly, the church was locked. These churches, these Anglican churches, all used to be open. Uh, they're all now generally locked because of thievery. Um, it's sad in many ways. Um, but this is the church in winter. Uh, he'll be there for about 30 years. About 900 people in the town. It's a little village just north of Cambridge. If you ever go, it's a bypass, a major highway, bypassing northern Cambridge. And you'll see a little sign, Dry Drayton. And that's where this church is. If uh, Richard Greenham came back today, the church looks, from the external, exactly the same. The internals changed a little. Uh, the village is still a small village. When he goes there, about 900 people, not one of the women in the town is literate. There's about 450, 500 women. None of them can read or write. And uh, he's going to have a Puritan ministry there, and quite a remarkable ministry. And we we'll talk about that, but also something of the larger scene with the King James Version Bible uh, after, and the events after the death of Elizabeth. But any questions? I've probably run through a lot, uh, but any questions before we conclude? What is that Bible that uh, you showed up in Puritan Yeah, that's the Geneva Bible. Yeah, the Geneva Bible. Um, so this is the one that we know mostly, the KJV, King James Version or the Authorized Version. Uh, the Puritans don't start using that until the 1650s. They don't like the King James Version. And the reason they don't like the King James Version is there are no notes. Uh, James, James didn't like notes. He doesn't like people reading, should you obey, is it right to disobey the king? No, it's never right to disobey the king. So okay, when he, when he, when he, when he, and we'll see this, when he authorizes a new translation, he'll specify absolutely no notes. So the one that uh, the, the Puritans like is that one, the Geneva Bible. This one's printed in London, but it's basically the Geneva Bible. Yeah, this is the Puritan Bible for the best part of 100 years. Uh, the printing start end around the 1660s. Yes. Did um, William Tyndall translate it completely on his own? The New Testament, yes. And then the Old Testament, he has helpers. Um, a man named John Rogers um, and uh, Miles Coverdale. And Miles Coverdale, because he doesn't finish the Old Testament, Miles Coverdale will go on to translate the rest of the Old Testament. And that'll be known initially as the Matthews Bible. And then the Great Bible. But yeah, Tyndale's remarkable. He's got, he's got facility, fab, absolutely fabulous facility in Greek. And also fabulous, pretty good facility in Hebrew. Um, which is really quite amazing. He also has a, I mean, he can speak Dutch. He's got French. He's got German. 
um, etc. And Latin. Yeah. How accurate are they to the original? Uh, Tyndale, yeah, 90% of Tyndale is in the KJV Bible. It's and, very accurate. And the Geneva? And the Geneva Bible is, is probably in some ways a better translation than the King James. It's a very good translation. Of course, there are places where it, it's off. So in that passage where it says in Genesis, for example, uh, and the Lord was with Joseph, there's a number of times it says that, uh, Tyndale translates that, and Joseph was a lucky fellow. <laughs> so when the KJV translators came to that, no, no, the Hebrew doesn't say that at all. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the genius of the, the King James Version. It goes back to the Hebrew and the Greek. Yeah. And that's why we, we, we need people who can read the Hebrew and Greek. If we don't, we'll be back in the situation of the, the Roman church in the medieval period. And the Hebrew is written at the time of Christ? Or no, it predates Christ predates. by centuries. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so for instance, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, there is a copy of the book of Isaiah, which was written around 200 B.C., the earliest copy that we had before we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 was around 1000 AD, 1200 years. It's, and they were written in that, in that community of Qumran? Right. It's virtually identical. I mean, people say, you know, uh, over the passage of time, errors would come in. Uh, Jewish scribes, they knew what they were copying. And they, 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 would, they would copy it, and then there would be a person called the corrector, who would check what they've copied. And so there was a great care taken uh, in the copying of the scriptures. I was told that the original uh, Dead Sea Scrolls are actually in uh, Rome. Is that, is that true? That's uh, quite possible. Yeah. I mean, they've all been published, but it's quite possible the original scrolls are in Rome. But when you look at pictures of the men working on the scrolls, it, it, it's kind of horrifying because, you know, they've got cigarettes. Oh. They'll be smoking. You got the scroll laid out here, and they, they're smoking cigarettes. Or uh, sometimes there's a crack on one of them, <laughs> and they've taped it with sellotape. I mean, it's it's just bizarre. But thankfully, we we most of the all of that uh, the material has been uh, uh, printed, deciphered, and printed. Um, I was reading. This is off to the side, but I was reading yesterday about a process uh, whereby the scrolls that are found in Pompeii completely burned or crisp, it looked like. Mm -hmm. uh, they're actually now able, through some infrared process, to decipher the text without unscrolling the scroll. Wow. Because it, it, to unscroll the scroll would destroy it. Yes. And it's absolutely amazing. So, Any other questions before we close with a word of prayer? Jamie? Yeah, someone wanted to read uh, one of the original Who would you find to be the most uh, approachable for us today, the easiest as an entryway to read one of the Puritans firsthand? Yeah, probably Bunyan in some ways. John Bunyan is, uh, he doesn't have a university education. He left school when he was 10 and never had formal education beyond that. John Owen is really difficult. Um, I think John Owen's thinking in Latin, <laughs> writing in English. Uh, in Latin, sentences go on and on and on. Um, and the main verb might be 60, 70 words in. Uh, 
Uh, I'm not joking. I was going through some Latin text recently, and the main verb was 59 words in before you hit, okay, what's this sentence mainly about? Uh, and John Owen writes English that way. So he's, he's not easy. Um, Richard Sips. I really like Sibs. I, he's very good. Uh, as we go through the, the various Puritans, I'll actually recommend some books. But Bunyan probably is the best in many ways. Um, even then, there's certain passages because uh, he's writing in 17th century English. But uh, what's great about most of these writers is, is they're, they're readable because they, they believed they wanted to communicate to the common person. Yes? Yeah, yeah. Banner of Truth has a whole series of Puritan paperbacks that they have rendered into modern English. Yeah. Okay, let me close in prayer, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to think about your work in the past. Uh, you're raising up a body of men and women who loved you, sought to bear witness to the gospel in their day. And we do pray that as we continue to think about them in the weeks to come, that their faith and their lives would challenge, inspire, encourage, and teach us. And may your peace now be with us for Christ's sake. Amen.